During the 2023 legislative session, the state Senate approved a bill creating a three-year pilot program which would allow nonprofit organizations to purchase patient debt owed to hospitals at a reduced rate and then essentially wipe the slate clean for the impacted New Yorkers. And while the measure did not pass the assembly, it does represent a means of addressing medical debt that is growing in popularity as the country grapples with how to address the billions of dollars in debt racked up from health care costs. So we wanted to explore the topic as well as the issue of medical debt collection more broadly. To do that, we've turned to the New York State Collectors Association, but they kicked us up to the national folks. So we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Scott Purcell, CEO of ACA International, the collection industry's leading trade association. Thanks for joining us, Scott. David, greetings. Looking forward to the conversation. So for starters, how big of a business is medical debt collection? Should we think of this as a niche industry operating uh, in the margins of our economy, or or is this big business? David, that's a great question. ACA International as a trade association has about 1,700 members. About 1,300 of those are collection agencies, and many of those serve each different type of healthcare provider in the healthcare space. If you think of it... um, Healthcare and the providers are great at providing care. And then there's the business side of it. And so collection agencies are very skilled at helping collect past due bills, especially setting up payment plans, long-term payment plans, often without interest. And so it's an adjunct, if you will, or an extension of the business office of that healthcare provider, be it a small doctor office or a large hospital system and everybody in between. So how does the collection process actually work? Are you contracted out with hospitals who might might have their own infrastructure to do collection capacity? Or or do you, say, purchase uh, the debt that uh, a hospital or other healthcare facility might have accumulated and then you pursue that on your own? David, that's a great question and often a a misperception. I will say that there are uh, purchase debt Uh, folks in the marketplace, and they provide a a very niche role in helping uh, the providers achieve their economic model and their financial goals. But for the lion's share, it's third-party debt collection is an extension of the business office of the provider that's helping get those past due bills paid. They typically work off a commission, so whatever gets collected, there's typically a percentage of that. There also can be some flat fee items. So if insurance is found or another resolution is found that helps the provider accomplish their goals, that can be paid for as well. But it really is a fee for services uh, provided. It's very competitive. So that healthcare provider wants to maintain their reputation in the community. So they will be very competitive when they go to market and choose one or more collection agencies as their business partner. They're looking at what is the standing of that collection agency in the community? Are they well-respected? Are they members of the trade association like ACA International? What are their policies and procedures? How sophisticated are they in terms of being able to communicate uh, in all the different forms of communication that is present today with their patients? Because once again, they are an extension of that business office. Well, Scott, you mentioned, I think, 1,700 members. So in the case of, say, New York, are the entities that are doing the collection, are they businesses that 
do collections across state lines or are they primarily, say, boutique collection agencies that might work with just a handful or even one healthcare facility? David, another great question. The reality is the ACA membership is very diverse. We have a preponderance of small members, uh, 15 people or less, if you will. And often they will be niche providers, if you will. They'll work with that dentist office or that sole chiropractor or that radiologist, uh, all the way up to mid-sized collection agencies, as well as there's a few publicly traded. Typically, they're they're not in the healthcare space, uh, but everybody in between, the preponderance is very small organizations. In terms of your members remaining in business, essentially being able to turn a profit, is there a percent that they need to get back when collecting outstanding debt or are the fees that they collect in some situations enough and any additional collections are just gravy on top. I guess what I'm saying is, is there an industry rate of say, hey, if we get bringing back uh, 10% of the debt that's out there, then we can stay in business? Or should we think about it as a case-by-case situation? Really as a case-by-case. And if you think about the free market in any situation, um, it's going to be based upon the facts and circumstances. So if a collection agency is working with that sole chiropractor, for example, they're going to understand what's the average balance of, of those accounts that are needing help on the collection side. How old are those? Does that chiropractor have anybody making phone calls, if you will, and following up internally? All of that kind of information goes into making a decision about providing a bid, if you will. Mr. Chiropractor, Ms. Chiropractor, I would you know collect the, these bills at X percent. That rate takes into account the level of work that that provider wants done and does take into account the expected amount of collections that will occur. Certainly smaller balances, uh, like a small copay, for example, that has a higher probability of being collected than let's say somebody who unfortunately doesn't have insurance and has a large uh, hospital bill from a large system. Those are very different and will be be priced accordingly. Well, before we move on, let me reintroduce you for listeners just joining us. This is the Capital Press Room, and we're talking about medical debt collection with Scott Purcell, CEO of ACA International, the collection industry's leading trade association. So the actual act of trying to collect money, I'm curious, what are the techniques that collection agencies can use uh, when trying to recoup medical debt? And how are those techniques in New York maybe different than what is allowed in other states based on some of the regulations that New York has adopted, especially in recent years? David, I'll say the the first thing, I think there's another misconception. Talking to a debt collector is a good thing because that debt collector is, particularly in this medical space, very, very skilled at understanding charity care, if you will, from a nonprofit system or understanding how insurance works. So if there's been any snafus regarding those issues, that bill collector is able to help guide that patient as well as work with the provider staff to bring resolution. Oftentimes, oftentimes it is not that patient having to pay that balance. It's getting the insurance company to pay that balance and that's proper resolution uh, of the account as well. You know, every state can be different and they look at sort of the societal norms, like uh, when is it too early or too late to make a phone call? How many phone calls should be made in a, in, a, in a given week? Luckily, 
ACA members have sophisticated technology where we're able to plumb that in. You know, one state says three times a week. Another says four times a week. We're able to capture those nuances with various technologies uh, that we use. And then we have federal law that comes into play, particularly the FDCPA that helps define some of those. And you might have heard of Reg F at the federal level. That's uh, something from the CFPB that modified the FDCPA in terms of coming to grips with, for example, texting and emailing to make sure patients are able to avail themselves to being communicated with using those more modern forms of communication, but done in a way that's respectful and gives control uh, to that patient. So for example, uh, if they initially say, yes, I would like you to text me, and, and then if they change their mind later and they opt out, once again, our members will honor that opt out. The vast majority, I will say on this texting issue, very, very small amount of patients actually opt out because it's a very convenient form of communicating. You mentioned the idea of what I'd call a carrot approach to debt collection, trying to either find missed financial assistance or ensuring that people are getting proper insurance reimbursements that they were untitled to and maybe didn't collect for whatever reason. But what about the other side of the coin? Is there a stick approach to debt collection as well, whether it's you know, threatening lawsuits or noting the negative repercussions that can happen from, say, debt impacting a credit score. What can the bad cop side of debt collection look like? David, no, I appreciate that. First of all, let me be really clear. Society through Congress has spent a lot of time thinking about what does respectful debt collection look like so that consumers are treated professionally, they're treated with respect, and those bills still get paid so that in this case, the providers can still provide those services. One thing I'm really proud of, of ACA is we came up with the collector pledge in 2010. It's really simple. It says, I believe every person has worth as an individual. I believe all people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. I will make it my personal responsibility to find ways to help consumers pay their just debts. I will be professional and ethical and commit to honoring this pledge. So that's a foundation. To answer your question about the, the stick side, in the Affordable Care Act, people put a lot of thought into this. So once again, this is only dealing with uh, medical bills that come from uh, nonprofit providers, but it is a good framework. The two big sticks there would be uh, credit reporting and use of the legal system. And there we've agreed there will be a 240-day period after providing those services before uh, they call them extraordinary collection activities. I think that's a good name, can be used. And on top of that, David, we all agreed if someone was going to credit report or use legal action, 30 days prior to taking that action, they would notify that patient to make sure they knew that is where that case stood and give them yet one more chance to say, nope, let's work out a payment plan. Let's look at some other alternatives. Uh, or if there's any resolution that this still needs done, that the chance to get that resolution on the table. And so I think societally, that was a good approach to how people responsibly use those two particular sticks in using your uh, vernacular. And after a quick break, we'll have more on the issue of medical debt collection, including a discussion about a pilot program proposed in New York with our guest, Scott Purcell, CEO of ACA International, the collection industry's leading trade association.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, this is the Capitol Press Room, and we're discussing the issue of medical debt collection, including a proposed pilot program in New York. And our guest is Scott Purcell, CEO of ACA International, the collection industry's leading trade association. We're going to get to some legislation that is not actually passed yet, but mentioning the credit reports makes me think of legislation that did move through both houses in New York and is waiting the governor's signature, which would have the essentially effect of preventing credit reports from being negatively impacted by medical debt. How would that impact your members and the tools that they can utilize for collection? David, that's a a great question. It's not so much about affecting our members as it is about the providers. Let's take a step back on that particular item. We know the three national credit reporting agencies implemented three large changes over the course of this last year. One, paid medical debt is no longer on a credit report. Number two, there's a one-year lag from incurrence of that debt before it gets credit reported. And then the, the last big change, David, went into effect April 1 of this year, and that is Uh, No medical bills with an original balance under $500 show up on the credit reports now. And so to answer your question, the reality is, here's the thing. There was no data-driven research done to see what those three changes would do to the amount of cash that goes back to the provider community. Now that these three big changes have been done, we very much recommend taking a pause before uh, any other changes are made. And let's study this and see what negative impact this has had on the providers. And has that caused them to do things any differently in terms of how patients in the community, members of our community, access health care? And so I know New York has as that one item, uh, as you referenced, uh, that's not been uh, activated yet. It seems one-sided at this point in terms of it will reduce cash flow to providers. And then what is the so what of that? What actions will they take as that decreased cash flow affects them? And you're saying a decreased cash flow because you feel like this law, if it became a law, would what incentivize people not to pay medical bills because they felt like it just wouldn't impact their credit reports? The data that we've looked at, um, and it's been hard to come by, is when that uh, change of the $500 happened in the second quarter of this year, and looking with some of our members, comparing uh, where they were on collections versus Q1, as as well as especially Q2 a year ago. Anecdotally, we've seen a range of reductions because of that change. Uh, One member uh, shared with me, it was about an 11% reduction, but then he shared, and I think this is a really important part of the discussion, is there was a range, David. So for one of their children's hospitals in Virginia, there was only a 3% reduction. But for a doctor clinic in rural North Carolina, there was a 70% reduction. And so that's why we're advocating, take a deep dive on the data and let's see what's happening from a data perspective, what kind of reductions are occurring. And as those reductions occur, what are the steps that providers are taking to mitigate that decrease? 
Well, turning now to the so-called Pilot Hospital Medical Debt Relief Program, what is your group's position on efforts to make it easier for nonprofits to purchase medical debt of certain patients and essentially just forgive it? First of all, we applaud New York and this particular bill for the innovative approach that's being put on the table. We especially like the idea that the provider community is involved. You can already tell from what I've said, we love the data-driven approach. Like, let's do this and see what happens. How does this impact everybody? Back to the Affordable Care Act. You know, there were two big goals I think the country wanted to accomplish with that. One is make great medical care accessible to everyone in the community. Number two, as the name implies, make it affordable. And part of that, and you know, there's a societal contract with the nonprofit healthcare providers that in exchange for not paying taxes, they will use that money for free or significantly discounted services to low-income people in our community. And what we saw in the Affordable Care Act is, as the nonprofits implemented it, they looked at their charity care policies or their financial assistance policies. And many of them, David, chose 200%, 300%, 350%, 400% of the federal poverty level as the mechanism to decide how much charity care to give. I live in Oregon, and Oregon was the first state to actually mandate what that societal contract looks like. So if you live in Oregon and you go to a nonprofit provider, if you're under 200% of the federal poverty level, 100% of your health care is free. If you're between 200 and 300%, you get a 75% discount for your copay and deductible. 300 to 350%, you get a 50% discount on your copay and deductible. 350 to 400 to 25%. And then it's only after 400%, which I believe this year is about $120,000 for a family of four, there would be no discount and you'd be expected to pay your copay and deductible. So what we see in this New York bill very much matches what we've seen many nonprofits do, and that's use a percentage of federal poverty level to help decide what those discounts uh, should be. The other thing that's intriguing to me uh, about the New York bill is this 5% cap. You know, the, the amount of the debt can't be above 5% of their annual earnings. So not only is it earnings per se to determine a discount, but then looking at the total amount of the bill. And so I'm intrigued by this. I'm intrigued by what the data will show, and I'm intrigued what kind of policy decisions will uh, be derived. On the other side of that coin is what is the cost to the provider and what are the actions that they would take uh, raising premiums for other people who can't afford to pay, for example, any other changes in their business model that might negatively impact uh, access to care. For this particular pilot program, I think my gut is that there will be some good things that come out of this. So you would encourage the Assembly to follow the Senate's lead and uh, pass this in the upcoming 2024 legislative session? I like the innovation. I like how it's a refinement uh, of what we've agreed to in the Affordable Care Act. And I like the fact that the providers are there and people are, have signed up to using data to help inform where to go after the three-year pilot. I think that's a healthy way to approach it. What about the idea that medical debt, maybe just like student debt, 
should be forgiven a- after a certain amount of time. Seeing like the, the cap on what people uh, would be required to to incur in terms of the debt related to their income, to me, is reminiscent of what uh, we see in some of the student borrowing space. And there's often talk about forgiving student debt after a certain amount has been paid back or it's been paid for a certain time period. Is that something that does exist or should exist in the medical debt space? David, if we if we take a step back and we think about it, I talked about my my Oregon-based program. Here we're we're already saying if you're under 200% of the federal poverty level and you go to a nonprofit provider, that care is completely free to that person. Well, we know it's not free overall. That money will get paid for perhaps in higher insurance premiums by everybody else who's covered, perhaps by higher taxes. Uh, if it's heavily Medicaid or, or Medicare, um, but it will get paid in one form or the other. So if you will, there's already forgiveness. Uh, and as I talked about that discounting program and a similar concept in New York is looking at, but the reality is those nonprofit healthcare uh, providers do that today already. So that forgiveness is occurring uh, today. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Although I think some people might say, that we're talking specifically in in that anecdote about maybe low-income people, whereas, say, low-income working-class people who might not identify as low-income are kind of omitted from that spectrum of uh, relief, and they might be incurring a lot of debt either because of inadequate health insurance or just determining that they can't use health insurance based on whatever it is in their life. Like student loans, uh, healthcare and medical debt is is a big issue. I think it's uh, read the other day. It's like twenty percent of our GDP. So we are talking about big numbers. And I, I follow a lot of different groups in terms of what are solutions. I definitely think education is big. Here we've talked today, and we know there's a difference between for profit and not for profit. You know, there's a complexity, but at the same time, we know there's a societal goal goal of making great medical care available to everybody in the community. It's one of those balancing acts of how will it all get paid for? What's equitable? The good news is with the Affordable Care Act, and even like this New York bill, you know, there's a roadmap, there's a framework in place today. This New York bill is intriguing because it provides some data three years down the road to make some informed policy decisions about how it could be uh, refined to achieve those policy objectives at an even higher level. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Scott Purcell. He's the CEO of ACA International, the collection industry's leading trade association. Scott, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. David, thanks for digging into this issue, and thanks for having us on the program. Classroom provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.